never really stopped to think about how important rest is until you're not getting enough of it, right? Uh, sleeping is something I was always very good at. I was a very naturally talented sleeper. And then the, over the last like three years or so, not so much. You know, my wife was never that good of a sleeper. She was not nearly as good of a sleeper as I was. This is not a struggle I ever wanted to share with her. I liked it a lot better when I slept uh, better than she did. And now we both uh, toss and turn a little bit. Rest is important. I've known people that have been diagnosed with sleep apnea and got the little machine thing. And all of a sudden, like for the next, the first week especially, they're like, holy cow, I didn't know life could be this good. A good night's sleep can make a world of difference. Um, remember Aesop's fables? Remember that name? Aesop, the ancient Greek storyteller. He used to speak about the importance of rest uh, by comparing people to the bows of the ancient Greeks, like bow and arrow bows. You know, those were all, you know, single, thick, strung tight with a string. Here's what he said. He would say, if you keep a bow always bent, it will break eventually. But if you let it go slack, it will be more fit for use when you want it. His, his point is something like this. As, as people, we're a little bit like bows. If we are always strung tight, if we never go fully slack if we don't rest we'll either eventually break or we we certainly just won't be as effective as we normally could be one of the great things jesus offers to people is rest he said it this way if i can turn my clicker on help me out one time they said thank you Jesus said it this way, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will allow you the opportunity to earn some rest. Is that what he said? No, Jesus said, I will give you rest. I want you to pay special attention that Jesus says he wants to give rest. Here's why I make a big deal out of that, especially out here where we live on the high plains, because we value almost above anything else, we value hard work, and that's a good thing. We value earning our keep, paying our way, and again, it's a good thing. But we can take that attitude toward Jesus in our spiritual life and it doesn't hold water. Because we can often feel like, you know, if I work 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week again and again, eventually I will have earned some rest. I will deserve a day off. And we can take that to Jesus and say, look at what I've done, look at what I do, trying to like rent or buy the rest Jesus will only give. Now don't hear me wrong, 
Jesus doesn't want you to be lazy. Jesus wants, uh, as we are able, to be givers more than takers. He, he doesn't want us... Work was a part of God's plan when the world was perfect. Work is good. But the kind of rest Jesus gives can only be given and never earned. Sometimes we need a reminder of that, I think. And that, in a way, is what Paul is going to teach us about this morning from Romans chapter 10 and verses 5 through 13. In the first four verses of chapter 10, and we studied them last week, you can find that sermon uh, through our website or on Facebook. In those uh, first four verses of chapter 10, Paul taught us why Israel rejected Jesus. And the reason was basically this. Jesus brought a gospel that said, if you believe in me, God will give you a declaration of righteousness even though you're not righteous. The Jews didn't want that. They wanted to earn their righteousness before God. They wanted God to look at them and say, based on how you've lived and the religious things you have done that made up for your sins, you've done enough for me to consider you righteous based on your own track record. That's what they wanted. Paul called it a righteousness of their own. That's what they wanted. God won't, God isn't selling righteousness. He will only give it. That's what Paul is talking about when we pick up today. In today's passage, Paul is really still contrasting two kinds of righteousness. Righteousness that comes by being good, by works, by religious observance, by obeying the law, and a righteousness that comes by faith as a free gift to all those who believe in what Jesus did at the cross. And as Paul contrasts these two things, it's like he's saying, be careful which one you sign up for. Because righteousness based on your behavior and your morality and your self-discipline and your hard work comes with a lifetime of impossible work. And righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ comes with rest. That's what we want to talk about today. Let's read our passage, Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 5 through 13. I put the page number in the bulletin if you want to find that in the uh, pew Bible in front of you. That should help. So Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes this way. He says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, 
Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you ever signed up for something and you didn't really fully realize what you were signing up for? You ever uh, enroll in something, sign up for something, maybe you didn't read all the fine print, maybe they didn't tell you all the fine print, maybe uh, they, the, the whole bait and switch thing happened, and before long, your credit card's getting charged every month for something that you didn't even know, then you try to cancel this and you can't get it canceled. You ever been in that situation? I remember uh, Rachel and I once had a credit card open that we didn't even know we still had, we just had just torn it up, and you, I could not get that thing canceled. I called, and I called, and I called. I've never done this before, but let me tell you, the company Fleet, straight from the bowels of hell. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. I'm sorry if you have family that works there. It is an evil, evil place. That's an aside, though. Uh, We need to be careful what we sign up for, don't we? We can get in trouble if we sign up something we don't really understand what we're signing up for. That's Romans 10.5. At first reading, if you just pull this out like I have on the screen and read just this verse, it can seem like Paul is saying something Paul's not saying. For Moses writes, Paul says, about the righteousness that is by law, righteousness that's by our behavior, the Old Testament says the one who does these things will live by him. It can sound like what, what Paul is saying is if you sign up, by righteousness through the law, and you live right, you'll get eternal life. You'll live based on your righteousness. But Paul's not saying that. He hasn't changed his mind. He's been very, very clear in the book of Romans. We maintain that righteousness comes by faith apart from the works of the law. So what's Paul saying? Well, first, hypothetically speaking, what I just described is could happen. I mean, hypothetically speaking, if you did obey the entire law, God would look at your life and say, you're righteous. You obeyed the whole law. But good luck with that. Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, let us know how many people are righteous based on their own behavior. How many? Zero, unless you count Jesus. There's no one righteous, not even one. Here's what Paul is saying. Buyer, beware before you sign up for righteousness through the law. Because the one who signs up for that has to live by the whole law. It's a, it's a package deal. Whoever obeys the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And there's not only to-dos in the law, there's also curses written into the law. For those of us who are lawbreakers, like Paul wrote to the Galatians. Paul said, For all who rely on doing works of the law for their righteousness are under a curse. Why? Because it is written in the law, this is from Deuteronomy right here, cursed is everyone who does not continually do everything written in the book of the law. So to be considered righteous based on your behavior would require 
superhuman effort and ability, right? We can't do it. The law points us in the right direction. It just doesn't give us the power to get where it points. To be considered righteous by God through, through being good would require superhuman effort and ability. That's why Jesus is the only one who has ever done it. He had supernatural effort and ability. And that's why Paul starts the next verse with this word right here, but. Paul has just said, if you're going to sign up for righteousness before God through your behavior, you've got to live by the whole law. Be careful, buyer beware. And Paul says this, but, and he's going to tell us about righteousness by faith. These are confusing verses to understand, but that's why you pay me. But, Paul's going to say, righteousness that comes by faith, the gospel, justification by faith alone and Christ alone, is different. It doesn't require superhuman effort and ability. That's what verses 6 through 8 say. Let's go through them and see why they say that. But the righteousness that's by faith says this. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That's to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That's the word of faith that we preach. What is all that? First, there's, there's different layers to this little section here. Who will ascend into heaven and who will descend into the abyss? These two little sayings right here, those are, they're Proverbs. They're not in the book of Proverbs, don't hear me wrong there, but they're proverbial sayings. And they are sayings for doing what's impossible. Like, uh, who will ascend into heaven? That's impossible. Who will descend into the abyss? That's impossible. It would be like if somebody today wrote it this way. Um, righteousness by faith is not like asking, your, asking yourself, can I climb Mount Everest in flip-flops? Can I, can I dive to the bottom of the Mariana Trench with just like a snorkel and some swim fins? Right? It's, it's humanly impossible. Righteousness that comes from the law, from behavior, asks you to do the impossible. The righteousness that comes by faith says, stop asking your heart to do impossible things. Righteousness by faith doesn't say, how am I going to climb into heaven? How am I going to ascend to the abyss, the place of the dead? Righteousness by faith doesn't ask us to do the impossible. Can I climb into heaven based on my own effort? Can I descend to the place of the dead and get myself punished enough that then God will be okay with me? No. Now, in between those sayings, Paul in parentheses here, he adds his own little commentary here. That's like trying to bring Christ down. That's like trying to bring Christ up from the dead. Here's what Paul says here. The, the law makes us feel like Righteousness by my own effort makes me feel like I have to do the impossible because that is what it asks. 
but it also is asking me to do something that has already been done for me. With these two lines, here's what Paul is saying. Who can ascend into heaven? And then Paul says, that's like trying to bring Christ down. Here's what he's getting at, I think. Paul says, let's just say you could climb that mountain, climb that ladder, and get all the way into heaven all by your own effort. What good would that do you, a sinner, once you got there? You know what you would still need when you got there by your own effort? You would still need a Savior. You would still need to grab a hold of the Christ and bring him down to earth to do what he already did. Let's say you could dive into the abyss, the place of the dead. It's like beat up the devil and steal all his toys. I don't know what you would even do down there. He said, what good would it do you even if you could do that? The only thing you would still need is to grab a hold of Christ and raise him from the dead. Both of those things have already been done. So Paul's saying the law asks you to do stuff you can't do. And righteousness by, by your own effort is, is necessarily asking you to do stuff that's already been done for you. Why would you try to do what God has already done? Have you been on the dump road lately? It's nice, isn't it? It just resurfaced that baby. It's silky smooth. What kind of idiot would it take to go out there and start tearing that up again right now? Why would you do what's already been done? Paul says righteousness by works, trying to be perfect. It's like I'm trying to redo what God has already done. How did God accomplish righteousness for you and for me? You know how? By bringing Christ down and bringing Christ up from the dead. Sin had to be paid for. There's no one who could die for your sin who had sin of his or her own. Because they would have to pay for their own sin, right? So God, the incarnation, sent God the Son down to earth, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, was crucified under the penalty we deserve for our sins, was buried, and then God raised him from the dead to prove that that was true. God has already accomplished everything we need to do, that we need done for us to have righteousness. We just get that righteousness through faith. All of the superhuman, supernatural, impossible work has already been done. Verse 8, Paul finishes this little part by saying, but what does it say? And it is righteousness that's by faith. What does the gospel say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. The word of faith that we preach. Paul says, verse 8, stop trying to push that giant boulder of your righteousness up the mountain to God. You can't do it. Stop trying to Punish yourself for your own sins. You can't do it. But it's already been done. Here's what you have to do. You have to understand, the word that saves you, the word of faith that Paul preached, is right there. Just like last week, the parachute we need to survive this fall is the gospel. It is right there. 
But so far, Paul has said, stop trying to do the impossible. The gospel doesn't ask you to do the impossible. And in the rest of the passage, verses 9 through 13, Paul just wants to tell us what we must do to be righteous before God. How accessible and simple and obtainable is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the righteousness before God that comes with it. I want to zero in first on just verses 9 and 10. They're a package deal. If you know one of these verses, it's verse 9, but verse 10 goes with it. They're two parts of the same thing. Paul is continuing to hammer home that unlike trying to be good enough that God will like me, unlike that, the gospel is very accessible. It doesn't ask too much of us. He says, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not too much to ask. Do you want rescued by God? Do you want to be redeemed by God? Do you want eternal life? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. Now, verse 10 tells us where that confession comes from. Verse 10, Paul says, For with the heart someone believes. With the heart someone hears the gospel. Something clicks. Something makes sense. I've heard this a million times, but all of a sudden on one day, like, wait a minute, I get it. I get what the bald guy has been telling me for 10 years. He was there instead of me, in place of me. He got the spanking, the punishment, the timeout, the failing grade, the condemnation that I deserved. That should have been me, and it was him instead. And now there's no more condemnation. I get it. I understand. You believe in your heart. And if that happens, you have righteousness. Here's what's incredible. When that clicks in your brain and your heart, and you believe why Jesus went to the cross, it was for you. You have righteousness before you ever do anything righteous you've been pushing that boulder up the mountain your whole life believe one second and your righteousness is at the pinnacle because you bear the righteousness of Christ now for Paul Paul didn't understand this was foreign to him he did there was for, for him there was no such thing as somebody who came to that realization and never told anyone He says, when, when someone believes in his heart and has righteousness and my judgment's taken care of and I have eternal life, he will tell someone. With his mouth, he will confess. That's how a person knows I have this salvation. What is the confession? What will be confessed by someone who has righteousness through faith in Christ? And this verse, very simply, 
that Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. I want to pause to give you a very short extra biblical history lesson. Okay, just me. This isn't in the Bible. But don't worry, this is at no extra charge. This is just for free. In Paul's day, there was a very common greeting, confession, proclamation in the Roman world, very similar to Jesus is Lord, but it went like this. Caesar is Lord. The emperor is Lord, my sovereign. And some of the hail Caesar stuff that you've seen in the gladiator movies is basically the same thing. Paul says, when I believe in my heart that Jesus died in my place, he said, for us as Christians, our proclamation will change from Caesar is Lord to Jesus is Lord. In the Roman world, that meant Caesar is a God. He's our divine. He's our sovereign. Paul says, no, for Christians, it becomes Jesus is Lord. Do you get nervous telling someone you're a Christian that you believe in Jesus? Like, it gives you butterflies in your tummy, makes you feel all nervous because they might reject you. You know, in Paul's day, someone said, Caesar is Lord. If you changed that proclamation and said, no, Jesus is Lord, within about 15 years of when he wrote this letter, like, they might feed you to the lions. It might boil, soak you in oil and light you on fire. What would it take for someone to take that kind of risk? You know what it would take? If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that's the only way you're taking that kind of risk. You ever wonder why the New Testament always says you have to believe Jesus raised from the dead. Is the empty tomb where your sin was paid for? Where was your sin paid for? At the cross, right? That's where he was forsaken so that I can be accepted. But there are over 200 references to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. There's like 16 of them just in Romans. Why? Because like Paul would say elsewhere, if Jesus got out of that grave and he was alive again, this whole thing is true. This whole Christianity thing is true. And if that never happened, if Jesus never raised from the dead, this whole thing is a lie. The resurrection is the foundation of our faith. It's what changed Paul. Saul of Tarsus, Saul the Christian hunter. It's what changed him from somebody who wanted to eradicate Christianity into someone who was willing to die to spread Christianity. The resurrection is what took the disciples who had run away and were all hiding, scared for their lives, and suddenly they get turned into these super evangelists that are willing to be beaten and imprisoned and executed for this faith. Why were they willing to proclaim, no, Jesus is Lord. You can kill me if you want to. Why? You know why? Because they saw Jesus alive again. That's why. Like now, I guess you can kill me. You killed him. 
He didn't stay dead, and he told me I wouldn't either. That's the importance of the resurrection. That's why Paul said, you've got to believe that that's true. Because if you don't, you will chicken out. You won't. You won't confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Because you will care more about what that other person thinks than what God thinks. But once you believe, wait a minute, this isn't all there is. I have an entire eternity to look forward to. And you believe that in your heart. That's where that confession, Jesus is Lord, comes from. All the gospel asks of us is to believe that everything that was required for our righteousness has already been done. We do not have to do the miraculous. We have to believe the miraculous has been done for us. And Paul finishes this passage in the last two verses, verse 11 and verse 12. In verse 11, Paul wants us to know again that this righteousness by faith thing that he's been talking about is not new. It's not new. In verse 11, this quote right here uh, was written about 700 years before Jesus ever lived. It's from Isaiah. Isaiah said, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That him is the cornerstone, the rock. That's Christ. That's Jesus. I know it's scary to proclaim Jesus as Lord. I know it's scary to live like that is your truth and the truth. But Paul says, everyone who does this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they won't be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. In verse 12, Paul says, this is true for everyone. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. That's everybody who's not a Jew in Paul's lingo. The same Lord is Lord over all who richly blesses all those who call on him. Listen, I know it's really, really popular to talk about. I just said it myself. Speaking your truth and believing your truth. People can have different perspectives. People can believe different things. But here's the truth the Bible teaches very clearly. There is one Lord who is Lord over how many people? All. Lord of all means it's not okay for the Christians to believe in their God and the Muslims to believe in their God and the Hindus to believe in all that stuff. There is one Lord and his name is Jesus. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to tell you one cool thing about verse 13, then we'll quit. See the quotes here? Paul quotes again from the Old Testament, this time from the prophet Joel. And if we were to look this up in Joel chapter 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's written in Hebrew, and you know what this word Lord is in Hebrew? It's Yahweh. You might have heard it said Jehovah. Yahweh is God's like proper name in the Old Testament. The God of Israel, Yahweh. So in Joel, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. You see what Paul does with that? In this context, who is the Lord everyone must call on to be saved? Jesus. 
You see that this cannot be true unless Jesus is God. This is one way that Paul very clearly calls Jesus God. He takes a passage from the Old Testament about Yahweh, the God of Israel. He says, that's Jesus. All right, where does this passage leave us? Rest is important. For our physical lives, getting enough good sleep is important. But it's so much more important spiritually. When you think about whether or not God is cool with you, on what basis do you think he is or he isn't? Because I'm convinced that most people spend their whole lives, like this guy on the screen, trying to be good enough. If they think about God at all, it's one of two things. Either I ignore God and pretend he doesn't exist, or I just keep trying to push my righteousness a little further up the hill, thinking when I die, if I can get that boulder high enough, God will say, well, you're better than most people, you get in. If we could zoom out from that picture, trying to get to heaven that way, the top of that mountain would be, you know, like the old World Trade Center. It would be like Mount Everest. It would be at the moon. It would be at Mars. When you become convinced that Jesus is who he said he was, that he died in your place, do you know what happens to extend this metaphor? Jesus takes that righteousness boulder, your righteousness, and like sits it on top of the mountain. I got this. Or maybe he does this. Maybe he flicks your little righteousness off the edge of the mountain and puts his own righteousness in your place on top. And you have righteousness. He clothes you in his righteousness. And then the rest that we rest is the rest from trying to push my measly righteousness up the mountain. I rest in his righteousness alone. He has other work for me to do. Right? I don't just quit life. He has other stuff for us to do. It's called chapter 12. We'll get there. But I can stop trying to do what I am not capable of doing, which is make myself righteous in the eyes of a holy God. He gives us rest not because he doesn't care about righteousness, but because he has accomplished it on our behalf. And if you believe that is true, if you really believe that is true, Paul says, you will tell somebody. You don't have to turn into Billy Graham. You don't have to become a world-class evangelist. You don't have to become an evangelist at all. You just have to tell someone, I believe in Jesus. Like, I get it, I understand it, I believe and I trust that his purpose for going to the cross, at least in part, was to bear my punishment, save me from my sin. That's how, if you come to him, he will give you rest. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that in your grace you saw fit to make a way to give us rest. We so want to earn our rest before you, Lord. 
we want to have done enough that you say, you know, well done in your righteousness, you did good. But God, if our work is pushing our own righteousness,